I'd like to ask for your attention for some uh, context of what we're doing. Sometimes we're sitting here with our apparently our minds and apparently our bodies and things can start to feel rather personal. Um, the wider context is uh, called Buddhism. It's mind training. The project is awakening. And the, the messages that help are quite timeless messages. They don't really go obsolete so quickly. So one of the contexts in which this mind training happens is called Satipatthana. It's probably the most comprehensive and in many ways the most pragmatically detailed um, suggestion of the early Buddhist tradition how such mind training can um, happen. That mind training is embedded in notions of ethics, it's embedded in notions of Brahma-Vihara, uh, immeasurables. It's um, for the most immediate disciples of the Buddha, it was embedded in notions of monastic discipline. The, um, many of the Satipatthana teachings are given to monastics, men and women. Um, which is not something that should stop us from practicing this, but often it is important to recall, because when we speak about Satipatthanas, there's a few things that are already in place before we actually, um, although they, are, they may not be mentioned very explicitly in Satipatthanas. As you know, with Buddhist teaching, um, we don't have a system. Yeah, so early Buddhism particularly doesn't give us a system. Early Buddhism goes back to a number of texts. They were handed down at least 300 years orally. You have to think of a text that is not written, but a text that is recited collectively by groups of people. Not all of the people had all of the texts. Some of the people remembered some of the text and group-wise they took care of handing these texts down. We have interesting little remarks that the commentary states that on this particular topic the reciters of the long discourses were in disagreement with the reciters of the numerical discourses. Yeah? So the, the commentarial layer of these texts already tells us something about um, the arduous task of holding a literature, a corpus of literature together without actually having anything of the sort we would think are the prerequisites for a corpus of literature. You know, print, books, media. You know. So, what we get when we look at these teachings, we get an immense amount of finely grained teachings which are all situational. They're not systematic. Yeah. The Buddha does not give us a system. He does not give us a philosophy. He doesn't say, here I have, this is what I have to say on fear, or here this is what I have to say on desire, or here this is what I have to say on perception. If you're interested in any such topic, 
you need to be prepared to find many, many, many corners of this corpus of texts. And you need to uh, sift through a lot of these teachings to find where that topic starts, how it is developed and where it continues. You know? We're used to have kind of manuals. What the Buddhist teachings is, in its, at least in the early phases, it looks a little different, say, with the Tibetan tradition or so. But in the early phases, what we have is an account of an encounter. The Buddha encounters people and he has exchanges with these people. These people may be smart or not. They may be sympathetic or not. They may be educated or not. They may be men, women, children. And what we have is an account of that particular situation. Usually, if things go well, with a little bit of um, context, we're told where it is, who was there, who said what, and what happened then. We get a little sort of glimpse of a, a moment of the Buddha's life and a moment of his encounters. Now, there's some great advantage to this. It's quite immediate, it's quite direct. There's often something touching. And yet, it's also, there are some annoying aspects to this as well. You want to know how it goes on. You know, what happened to these people? Did this take a good end? Um, you know, did he come off booze? Did she die before she had realization? Did he make amends? Yeah, we don't know. Sometimes we do. We find out. 400 pages later in a different book, we find out. Or we have ingenious guys who uh, have worked through all this and started to make uh, uh, lists of names and then tell us what happened to these people, where in the suttas they all occur. So we get some very interesting stuff. And we can trace somebody's, somebody's encounters with the Buddha through various teachings we find scattered over a number of books. Now this is quite fascinating if you love this sort of thing. Uh, it's a little time consuming. And um, it probably doesn't quite agree with some of your learning style. Yeah? We're quite spoiled in our learning. We, um, we like to get the lowdown on a particular issue. And then we like to have that neatly prepared, you know, preferably with a comprehensive foreword, a good contents page, a nice glossary, indices, uh, keywords at the back, and little little call-outs that tell us which are the important bits to memorize, preferably in another color. So, Suttas are not like that. Suttas have something demanding. They ins insist that I join that situation, that I'm teleported into that situation and I sit there with the guys who are sitting there. And I may not know the context. I may not know what these people do at home. I may not know what weather there was. I may not know what happened just two weeks before at that place. I may not know anything about the system of governance in this place. I may not know anything about the biography of the people who ask questions or who prove to be stubborn or who find awakening <laughs> in the course of listening. I may not know much of this, but the sutta asks for me that I join this situation. 
The only way you can understand the sutta is by entering that context. That's what makes it so difficult to read, because we're used to skim web pages, read newspapers, maybe rifle through instruction manuals, um, um, devour a novel. We're used to this kind of reading, but we're not used to being thrown into a situation and then just kind of metabolize what's happening and not be offended by a few strange names or archaic formulations. And we're particularly not prepared for the repetition. Many of these suttas have lots of repetitions. This is easy to understand if you think every oral tradition, every oral literature across the globe where you have oral literatures which were later written down are full of repetitions because you, that's what you do when you don't have an index page, when you don't have a contents, when you can't write, you know, leaf back three pages and see, oh, okay. You know, and it says, as stated above, you know, I, I can turn back my leaves in a book. I can't do that when I listen to somebody and I don't have a written record. So there is a human mind being what it is, as much capable of forgetting as it is capable of remembering. Uh, oral traditions have done basically justice to this little facet of the human mind and they have repeated things that were important. In fact, they have stereotyped important bits and they have placed them in this stereotyped form into a text because it was easier to remember a stereotyped sort of stock phrase or the biblical scholars would call that a pericope. Yeah. So uh, when you meet stock phrases like this, uh, there's something in us that tires immediately. We don't want to be talked to in stock phrases. Once you have known a few of those stock phrases, you're, the habitual mind is immediately put off by this. And once you're put off, you tend to miss the small little change that happens in the repetition. You, know, you notice that something is missing in this particular part. Most of the rest of the paragraph is the same, but then there's a crucial bit missing, or there's a crucial bit added, or it has a slight different twist at the end of one and a half pages of repetition. That would have been important, but unfortunately, that's where you were just starting from skimming to leafing through rather rapidly. Yeah. So that's why suttas are not easy. Most of us need help in, in reading suttas. Just because we know how to read doesn't mean we know how to read a text that is two and a half thousand years old. You know, you'd be completely un understanding of the circumstance if you were something of similar age. Say, Attic comedy, yeah? Aristophanes, 4th century BC. It's pretty old. Have you ever tried reading this? It's quite powerful stuff if you make the effort to actually get in there, but um, the jokes are no longer funny somehow. You know, this thing works really different. What was biting sarcasm and understood by everybody as a obvious persiflage of Greek society of his day, you know, is completely lost on us if you're living in Western Mass and have grown up with YouTube and, you know, John Stewart or so. This is not really, this is not really your, your idiom, yeah? Greek jokes of the fourth century BC. Now, that is the distance from which Buddhist teachings come from.
Yeah. That is the distance. So if we expect, just because you like uh, Jack Cornfield and you think this is inspiring, uh, so you kind of take the plunge and say, okay, that was Jack Cornfield, now I'm trying to read a sutta. And there's the same attitude, the sutta will lose. Yeah? Because well, Jack is a contemporary, gifted writer, practitioner, uh, skilled in many arts, and the suttas coming from a very different tradition. They need you to enter this world in very different ways. Yeah. And we meet, when we try to enter this world, we enter, in a way, a specialist world. Yeah. We become discoverers. That means we need to be more patient, we need to learn something about the background. It's not that you need to study Pali or Sanskrit. I mean, obviously that would be great, but uh, I don't expect many of you, I hope some of you, <laughs> are willing to learn at least some key words. And maybe some of you are uh, enthusiastic in delving in there. It's more possible than it would probably ever was with the um, digital uh, possibilities that we have today. Yeah. But the question is one of establishing a context. I'll give you an example. One of the key terms in Buddhist teaching is something called grasping, attachment, identification, holding on to. The word is upadana. This word occurs in a number of contexts. It occurs obviously most famously independent arising uh, as the, one of the key activities that we are propelled to do by thirst. Yeah. It is the impulse of desire, thirst, so aptly uh, illustrated in Buddhist uh, language. Uh, desire propels us to do grasping, to do craving. And this uh, craving and grasping is uh, a powerful activity of the mind and of the heart. And we can translate that. We can say, okay, when the heart is dead, then we call this grasping. When uh, we volitionally follow through on this, we call this um, attachment or taking hold of or appropriation. We can be more subtle and say, well, actually, you know, when the mind does this, then this appropriation is probably best called identification. Yeah, There's something happening in my mind and I identify with that particular content of experience. And I make a self or an ego or a personality out of the content of my mind. Yeah, So I take a part of my mind, I declare this part to be mine, and then when that part goes, that funny feeling of mind stays behind. Yeah, that's the activity of identification. Very common thing to do. If you want to suffer, do a lot of it. Yeah. So the Buddha is quite clear. This is a major, major uh, power that creates, that tries to prevent suffering and provide happiness and does exactly the opposite. It is one of, it's in a very, uh, there's a much pathos in the, understanding that what we try to avoid most ardently with this activity is precisely what is most likely to happen through this activity. Uh, there is a great poignancy in this little uh, crucible in there. So, but that term, upadana, even we may translate it literally, yeah, 
dana giving, adana taking, upadana taking very strongly. Um, or we may translate and translate it freely, psychologically, as identification, or we may, may translate it um, in a sort of figurative way, come up with attachment or grasping, very even more figurative. Yeah. Um, very nice German, for example, has a word for this grasping, which is um, in the meaning of understanding, begreifen. Yeah? It's very interesting. One way to understand something is if you kind of get hold of it. Yeah? So we can do that, and that is good. We have done much more, but it doesn't tell us anything about the context of this word. Uh, the context of this word is quite fascinating. In Vedic teaching, upadana has a double meaning. One of them is fuel, that which is the um, offering sustenance to the process of fire, of burning. And the other one is grasping, as I just said. Now, it's difficult to find an English or, for that matter, an Italian or French word that does justice to this double meaning. So, you have to make a choice. Yeah? Which one of the meanings are we going to apply in this particular context? You're inevitably going to lose the pregnancy of that term in some way. It has a saturation that is no longer there in the translation. Now, that saturation is even stronger when you understand what the term was used in the Vedic tradition. So, Vedic tradition had a variety of practices. One of them was keeping the fires going. Vedic fire puja, Agni Hotra, you know, some of you may have seen this. It's a very powerful, beautiful ritual. Um, reciting of the Purusha Sukta, and then you do the ritual feeding of the fire with various substances. It's powerful. The, there's an ascetic form of this, which uh, ascetic practitioners at the time of the Buddha were engaged in. And they didn't do occasional fire pujas, Agni Hotras, but they kept the sacrificial fires going permanently. So, the Agni, god of fire, Agni is a Vedic deity, and was worshipped by these sacrificial fires being kept in motion. And the way you keep these sacrificial fires in motion is by watching that fire and by feeding that fire. And the activity of feeding that fire was called upadana. Yeah. The right activity of ritual was called karma, and the fuel you would feed that fire with was called upadana. It was the fuel for the sacrificial right ritual activity, yeah? the proper practice. So when you know this, you realize what the Buddha does. He takes a term that is considered a wholesome fueling of a ritual sacral act, namely keeping the sacral Vedic fires in worship of the god Agni in motion. Yeah? This is considered something very useful. It's something priests or ascetics would do. Um, and the Buddha uses that term and completely turns it on its head. Yeah? So the Buddha uses this term upadana and describes the activity, the psychological activity of grasping to be the fuel for something that is not ritual and sacrificial and worship, but something that is keeping the fires 
of greed, hatred and delusion in motion. Yeah? So he uses this term upadana in, this, in the same way, but he turns the thing on the head. What we keep going is not the sacrificial fires in worship of God Agni, God Agni, but it's the, it's the fires of greed, hatred and delusion that are kept in motion, that kept, fu- kept being fueled by our activity. Yeah? So he uses his cultural idiom in some way, and then he rejigs the meaning in a dramatic way, which must have been both very provocative and yet also very charged in his day. Now, we don't get this just from translation of the word. We need to know something about Indic traditions. We need to know something about Vedic rituals before we can do that. Now, think of a piece of wood. <coughs> and think how that piece of wood burns. Think the flame. It's Actually, it's, it's not the piece of wood that burns. Technically, it's, it's when that piece of wood is hot enough, then some, some gas exudes from that piece of wood and that gas is then, uh, what's the word, combusted? No, probably not, but you know, combustion starts to take place. So the the flame attaches to that fuel as long as there is fuel. If you blow into that flame, it seems the flame kind of bends away, but it tries to cling on to the fuel. So... The double meaning of the term upadana we can easily find illustrated by, say, the behavior of a flame in respect to the fuel that keeps that flame going. On one hand, it is fed by that fuel. On the other hand, it consumes the fuel. And in a third way, you could see that the flame really tries to keep hold of the fuel that nourishes it. Now, that tells us something very profound about the notion of upadana that we cannot find if we just translate the term. Yeah. There's a, a potency in that image. Yeah, Burning, consuming and attaching suddenly makes sense if you think of a piece of burning wood. If you just play with the word alone, that doesn't do the job. You know? So reading suttas and, reading and understanding some of the way the Buddha speaks um, takes a lot of work in this way and we've only just begun this work uh, unfortunately Buddhists generally don't read uh, Buddhist scholars you know, they read meditation teachers sometimes they do read Buddhist scholars but you know there's a wonderful amount of uh, scholarship out there of people who have studied their lives uh, what these texts could mean and we only very hesitantly, as practitioners, we tend to think these people are not really, they don't really know about the Buddha because um, I'm a meditator and they aren't. So they, they can't tell me anything about the Buddha. We can be quite snooty, actually. Yeah. It would be quite useful if Buddhist folk would actually read what Buddhist scholars or, uh, turn up. They didn't need to agree with anything. In fact, uh, you can do much more fascinating things with people than agreeing with them. But we could learn. Yeah? We could learn a lot. Not just what they have to say, but also what we instinctively believe. Much of our views, and remember, views are a very... Uh, there's some danger there in views. Many of our views are not actually conscious views. 
One of the upadanas, by the way, this is another use of the term, is uh, the famous ditti upadana, the identification with view, opinion, ideology. And um, we do almost hold views about just about everything under the sun. It seems to give us a certain confidence. It seems to order our experience of the world. And it's reassuring to us that we have views, at least as long as we are surrounded by people who share these views. When they are not in agreement with our particular brand of views, the things get a little more complicated. So one of the forms of identification and grasping is the grasping at view. And the majority of these views, they are not actually willfully acquired and argumentatively corroborated opinions or ideologies. Most of these views we have more or less imbibed with mother's milk. Yeah? They're unconsciously there. We only acknowledge these views when we meet, or more, more exactly, when we collide with people who hold contrary views. Traveling is a great one, isn't it? You go to some country and suddenly you find out that some of the things that you never thought about, but that you felt that every normal person, every reasonable person, every decent person, every, every logical person would do exactly the way you do it, is utterly done differently. And you're really in the minority. The people there think they are logical, they are normal, they are decent, they are reasonable, they are, yeah? and you're the one out. This is a quite... Uh, good experience. It's particularly good an experience if you come from a country which is huge like yours and which has the, the blessing and the curse of more or less one unified language. You know, where I come from, you know, my view and my, my opinion, even my language is only worth for 30 kilometers and then they start to speak French or Italian. <laughs> so you'll grow up with this notion that what holds true for you may not even hold true for the next valley. Yeah? Here it's a little more difficult. Yeah? Um, so when we travel, we suddenly found ourselves outnumbered with our uh, notion of normalcy. And we have some startling experiences that there are people who do things really differently. Yeah? And when you, get, when you learn how to peel a fruit in Thailand, you don't do that towards you, you do that away from you. And you don't use your thumb you use your index finger yeah? when you see that the first time. This seems a really weird, even dangerous thing to do. Yeah? Uh, and you, then you realize, actually, no, it's, it's as normal as what you have learned. In fact, it's less dangerous because you're moving the knife away from you rather than towards you. But, but still, it feels somehow wrong. You know? And you find yourself... You're trying to prove that it's wrong. You're trying to prove that yours is better. You're trying to prove that yours has advantages or the other one is somehow risky or, you know, or has disadvantages. And after a while you realize, no, actually, the way you have learned to peel potatoes is just is completely arbitrary. And it, you can peel potatoes just the other way around, it's at least as good, if not better, if you put it to test. And you start thinking about it like that, you know, you start thinking, our alphabet is the best, or then you realize how an Indic alphabet works, and it's beautiful. It has actually a list, and be, it, the sequence of the sounds in the Indic alphabet 
is such that it corresponds to the place where you produce that sound in the mouth. Yeah? So you start with the dentals and you go back to the gutturals. Yeah? They're at the end of the list. And at the first you're going to think, why do they have these lists wrong? Why are, they, why are the vowels in the wrong place? Why, you know, why do they all these things the wrong way? And then you realize, actually, well, they, they have a other system. And in fact, if you're honest, it's actually a better system, although it seems wrong to you, just because you've gotten used to yours. And so it goes it's through your life, you know, just how people live and how they build toilets and what what rites of goodbye and what gestures of contact or uh, uh, reverence they have. And you realize just how arbitrary your conditioning, your system, your way of thinking, your apparent practical life hacks yeah, uh, go. And this is, a very this is a very helpful experience to see just how much of what you think is normal, the reasonable way to go about it, logical, most expedient way to go about it, how arbitrary that is. Yeah, it's, quite, it's quite startling. Sometimes it goes a little bit, um, you know, I can detect some opinions. I've lived many years in Thailand and I, you know, when it comes to, say, traffic organization, I am a staunch Swiss, you know. <laughs> I would, under practically every situation, prefer the way Swiss go about organizing traffic than, say, what I have seen on Thai roads, you know. Thai roads, have always, this has always struck me as a, Carnage, basically. <laughs> you know, I know that one of the most dangerous things I do in my life is sitting in cars and on bicycles and participating in basically in individual traffic. That's, I think, by far the most dangerous activity I do in my life. I occasionally have flown with my brother's paraglider or I have climbed the mountain or so, but I know statistically and from the felt sense level you know, sitting into a car and driving with other mad people on roads at velocity that they will not survive when something goes wrong uh, is the most dangerous thing I'll probably ever do in my life. Yeah? I have no doubts about this, and I do it often. So, uh, given those circumstances, I would still think, uh, you know, if we, if we do this, and it's dangerous even under the best of circumstances, let's do it as... as a little safer than, than than what I have seen in Thailand, you know, whole families on your motorcycle, with you know, uh, ninety kilometers an hour in between two slower driving rows of cars, you know, little boy sitting on the backlight and little the girl sitting on the tank, and <laughs> just no, 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 no. Let's go back and be Swiss about this. Yeah. <laughs> I give preference to this. But many other things, you know, how relationships work, how how the little things of everyday life work, we learn a lot just by going outside of the circle of our um, self-evident sort of behaviors. So many of our opinions are not acquired consciously and upheld ideologically and defended argumentatively. Most of our ditties we have tacitly acquired. They are the produ produ product of lack of investigation, laziness of thinking, credul credulity, parental conditioning, uh, the 
the uh, the going the going opinion in my subculture. Yeah, all this stuff has immense amount of power to create ditti, to create opinion and view and uh, ideology, and that translates down from the perceptual level. That translates down into values. Then, yeah, we think these guys are cool, or we think these guys are uncool. We think this is shoddy. This is careful. Yeah, we have we develop clues, and we go to other places, and we realize just how specific our conditioning is. While we never admitted that we even had that conditioning, we only find it when it is conflicted with. I think my image is kind of, it's like you, you're on a boat and then you suddenly you hit an underwater rock or a reef. So you don't see that there is a resistance, you don't see that there is an obstacle. But you find out how hard you identify with particular ways of going about things, thinking or behaving or going about social norms, when you realize it doesn't work like that. And you just hit this kind of obstacle and your first moment is usually a jolt it's a jolt which says oh this can't be this is wrong somebody must prohibit that you know this is just completely impossible what he's buying this is absurd this is grotesque i've heard my mind so many times think this this is absurd yeah this is totally absurd and in a strange way it is you know uh, the word absurd Absurdus means, you know, it's kind of, I can't hear. I cannot hear it. It is something that does not reach my, my heart. Yeah? In Thai, to understand something is when something enters your heart. So if my ears cannot hear, it, I, indeed I am incapable of understanding this. I am incapable of this entering my heart. And what this reaction of absurdness was, this reaction of, Somehow, somebody needs to stop this. This can't go on like this. You know, we need to take it. This, this needs to be fixed. Somebody needs to tell them. It basically was, in most cases, uh, an intense feeling of insecurity. Not just was I disagreed with in a particular value, but that disagreement implied that my whole value system had an arbitrariness, which I find very disconcerting. If I was arbitrary in that particular value, my whole value system might be arbitrary. Yeah? That has something profoundly unsettling. Yeah? Obviously, there are names for this. It's called culture shock. Yeah? This is when Swiss boy suddenly wants to go home and locks himself up in the hotel for the next week because he just can't handle any more Kolkatans going about their Kolkata business. Yeah? Or when you know when you start to crave hamburgers or Coca-Cola or just anything which makes you think of home, you know whatever, whatever you're used to at home, you just want clean junk food. You know, <laughs> you just want <laughs> you just want lower doors that lock properly and and uh, you know and loo compartments that don't just go halfway up so that you can talk with your neighbors you just want you know you you want guaranteed that this is bacterially clean and you know you want trains that come on time or that 
come at all. You know, <laughs> you want less people or people who know how to queue, or you want you want to see a familiar uniform. You know, that's when it's re getting really bad. You know, when you want when you're down to uniforms. You know, this is so. Yeah, you know, there's lots of stuff that you may uh, experience once you travel and you expose yourself. As I hope you you will take the opportunity then you will suddenly, your heart kind of shrivels in some ways. And something in you says, can't they just be normal? You know, I remember the, being faced with the Indian stare. I was walking with my monk friend Christoph, uh, then called Sangvaro, through India. We had a ticket in and we had a ticket out. And we were basically arms mendicants with arms balls. And we walked. We wanted to walk the holy places. Which is, you know number of hundred kilometers and that meant we we were outdoors almost all the time we had no money and we were dependent we were literally beggars so and if you wanted to take a rest sometime in the heat and we just we would lie down and then we would wake up and then we had kind of five guys staring at us just <laughs> you know I learned to identify this as a friendly gesture later on, but it was, you know, in my conditioning, this was not sort of something I was easeful with, yeah? I needed to get used to this, that I just kind of had been this unquestionable stare at me. Just, and this was quite common, this was quite okay within that particular context. This was the normal thing to do with this something strange looking like Buddhist monks with white skin and you know, you go and look at it. Yeah, that's normal. That's the norm. That was the sane and normal thing to do there. In my conditioning, this was a little close. Yeah, I didn't want to be stared at when I sleep. Yeah, there's, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sort of how shall I say. Selective who I let in on that one. Yeah, so, so it took a little getting used to. And it was. It wasn't just a it wasn't just a man, you know. When 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 we were found by girls, it was the girls who kind of they came a little close, and then they looked, and then they went to get the boys. <laughs> so, so either way, it wasn't just a few rude sort of adolescent boys who did that. It was it was clearly a cultural code which was completely okay and normal, and I felt highly unnormal about it for a while. You know. After you know a few weeks, you get kind of used to it uh, and find it quite fascinating uh, when you come from a culture like Thailand who is meticulous in encroaching on you physically and uh, gives you a lot of leeway at the same time trying to not leave you alone yeah so where it's impolite of letting a friend walk alone because it is considered to be your duty so that he or she is not alone you accompany them <laughs> Which is the, the total opposite. So you learn a lot about your, say, distance values or about your your cultural codes, how you make contact or this kind of thing. And you would never think about this as long as you're surrounded by people who share your conditioning. That's why traveling is such an amazing thing. Now, why do I tell you this at such length? Because it is we underestimate the power of subliminal conditioning. Many, most of our views, and that makes them dangerous, are subliminal views. Yeah. That holds true for 
just about views on anything you can have. Views about men and women, about color of skin, about value, views about intelligence. I've been a Buddhist monk for a number of years and people in Thailand, because they learn their Buddhism in Thai language from Thai monks and the texts are written in Thai language, simply assumed that because I didn't speak Thai, I knew nothing about Buddhism. I'd been studying Buddhism for years. I knew some Pali. I, you know, I knew the chanting, and they kept being surprised that I need, that I knew Pali chanting, and yet I was speaking Thai very badly, yeah? because for them it was hard to believe how I could learn about Buddhism without having first learned Thai language or Thai writing or Thai books. Yeah? So it's quite it's quite startling. I thought. This is just, yeah, he's never traveled. He just didn't think about this. Yeah, it's a, it's a small farmer. I mean, why should he know that? But it was across the board. You know, I kept meeting this experience, the disbelief or, or the admiration, which is just, you know, the, the reverse side of the disbelief. Oh, you can chant very nice. Well, damn it, I'm a monk. I've been doing this for 10 years, you know. <laughs> it would be bad if I did it, yeah. But the, the expectation that, to be able to do this, you need to do that and that and that, and you need to have been here, and you need to have been eating sticky rice, and you need to be able to speak Thai like all the monks who I know do. Yeah? This is strange. Yeah. So views and opinions are powerful, and they color our perspective. If we um, have a chance to unearth some of these views, this is usually accompanied with a degree of shock, with a degree of discomfort. Sometimes we are frightened because at the moment our view doesn't hold anymore. Not because it's debunked completely, but because somebody holds apparently with equal conviction and maybe even equal justification uh, another view. Somehow our little system seems to be shaken up. The implication is, well, not just am I not particularly right on this point, but that means my whole system is actually under in question. If I am wrong in this one, maybe I'm wrong in a many, many other ways. Maybe if what I believe to be is normal and sane and reasonable, and that turns out to be just one arbitrary position I've for some reason been inculcated with, maybe that means many other of my understandings are equally questionable. And that is quite unsettling. That can be quite hard to handle. So we tend to attach to views. We tend to surround ourselves with people who corroborate our views. Yeah. That's what even the most weird rites do. They create harmony. They create a sense of community. They create a sense of mutual affirmation. And that is psychologically quite comforting. Yeah? That's why the weirdest ideologies work at that. Not because what is specifically reaffirmed there is genuinely true, but because a number of people do this, and that gives us both a sense of coherence, it gives us a sense of mutual and shared understanding, maybe even a feeling of conspiracy. Um, 
it gives me the feeling I am allowed to be that way because he is that way as well. Or he says it, this is okay to be that way, th therefore it must be okay. And we all do that to some extent. And once we are shaken out of that tree, we're generally a little on edge. We're a little nervous. So Upadana has many facets. View is just one of them. Meditators have views. Views are usually strong where we, uh, where we have invested time and energy. We may have a few views about people we don't know, but usually these views don't go very deep. You know, soon we can be disabused quite easily of those views once we actually meet the people or we connect. But where we get really strong views is uh, when things help us. We really do attach to views when, when it's about safety, yeah, when we need to create safety for us. And when things have helped us, we attach to things that are good. Yeah. So if you're a meditator, you attach to technique, you attach to uh, lineages, you attach to methods, you attach to teachers. And it's interesting to study that act of grasping and identification. Think of this image of a fire holding on to a flame, holding on to the fuel that feeds that flame. It's a powerful image. The tenacity in there, the insistence in there, the unstoppable nature of, say, a fire. As long as it is fed, it will continue to burn, you know, unless you do something fairly strong to it. It will just consume away. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Buddhist psychology connects the fire element in the body with aging. Yeah. It's uh, the cons the consumption of life energy and the aging process will is connected with fire. Yeah. So the unstoppable, the immutable nature of uh, aging is con equaled or, or likened to the unstoppable nature of how a fire consumes its fuel. And as long as there is fuel, that fire will continue. So, an interesting image, isn't it? The Buddha taking a Brahminical or a Vedic activity called karma, being meant to do good stuff, doing the right thing, following the cosmological law and feeding the fire and the fuel by which one feeds that fire is called upadana and that keeps the eternal sacrifice going that keeps the worship of the god Agni going and that keeps me doing good karma doing my duty and the buddha turns it on his head on its head and upadana becomes the very activity also offering fuel, but this time to offer the fuel that creates suffering, namely greed and hatred and delusion. And as long as we keep putting in that fuel by the activity of grasping, attachment and identification, those fires will be kept going. Amongst other things, with the help of you. Well, contemplate and um, let me end. And, uh, let us sit for a moment and then we finish with chanting.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.